Hey, good morning, Milestone Church. It is so good to be with you guys here today. I got to tell you, that kids' choir, that pumped me up. Man, if you're, aren't you excited watching, watching that? My goodness, I was over there in my seat. I was like, well, I want to be a champion like that. I grew up in church. I never got to be a part of anything like that when I was a kid. But, man, it's exciting here at Milestone. 55 salvations at the middle school camp. 19 salvations just at the VBS here at McKinney alone. That's awesome. Come on, let's give God one other round of applause for everything that he's doing. Well, hey, it is so good to be here with you uh, today. As Pastor Chris mentioned, my name is Tim Springfield. I get the wonderful privilege of getting to oversee our small groups ministry, as Pastor Chris mentioned. I also uh, get the privilege of overseeing our freedom. Any uh, freedom people in here going through freedom right now, been through? You see the excitement there. Hey, if you haven't been through freedom, go ask any of the people that raise their hand and say, do I need to go through freedom? And they'll say, yes. And it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because everybody needs to go through freedom. We really believe that. And if you're not going through it right now, we're going to launch another semester in September. Do I need to do anything with the mic? All right, I can receive coaching right here. Um, <laughs> But we're going to be starting the next Freedom Semester in September, and we'd love to have you guys a part of it. On behalf of Pastor Jeff and our lead team at the Keller Campus, we want to say greetings. Thank you for being a part of our McKinney Campus. We truly are one church in multiple locations. And give it up for your pastor, Pastor Chris and Wendy. They are just incredible people. I love them. They are so much fun. They have so much life, and they truly love you, and it's my privilege to be here with you today. Um, unfortunately, my family wasn't able to be here, but I did bring a picture of them to introduce them to you. This is my beautiful wife, Christy. She is really the rock of our family. She is amazing both inside and out. Um, beneath me in the picture is my older son, Stephen. He's 10 years old. On the other side is his brother brother Evan, who is eight. We actually get asked just about weekly if they're twins. Um, they are not twins. They are two years apart. And other than looking alike, uh, it is amazing how two people that share similar DNA could be more, couldn't be more different from each other. Those of you with multiple kids, you know what we're talking about. But I like to say that they keep life fun for us. And then my wife is holding our little surprise Caitlin Grace, and so she is probably about nine months in that picture. She's now a year and a half old, and she's got this long, curly, reddish-brown hair, and she is just the joy of our family, and since my family isn't here, I can let you guys in on a little secret. She's my favorite, <laughs> and honestly, it's okay for me to say that because she's everybody's favorite. Look at this next picture here. That is truly how these boys act with their sister. They just love her. And she is just, she lights up our, our whole family. I like to say she's God's reward for us having a baby in our 40s, so you can pray for us. Um, <laughs> and just, you're looking at these pictures, and we look like this, such a nice, lovely family. Here's what the day really looked like, uh, if I could be honest with you. You can see the baby hitting her mom. You can see the... <laughs> This expression on Evan's face, he almost didn't survive this picture. I, I'm, I'm telling you, I almost picked him up and threw him in the lake, and I probably wouldn't be here with you today if I had, so thank God that I didn't do that. But that is our family, and it is so good to be here with you today. 
And uh, we are going to open up um, to John chapter 13. And I can't believe it, but I left my Bible. Tommy, can you bring that to me? Don't ever leave without the word of God, especially if you're preaching. Hey, thank you. Um, So open up your Bibles to John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we will have it up on the screens as well. And last week, Pastor Drew was here with you guys, and he did a phenomenal job. I listened to his message, and he talked about having a life, living a life that's full. And in fact, he went back to John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says uh, that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and life to the full. And one of the things that he said last week that, that I wanted to put up here on the screen is that Jesus offers us a full life at the deepest level. And then Pastor Drew went on to talk about five qualities of having a full life in Christ. Well, this week, I want to continue in that theme of talking about how do we experience the full life that God has for us. And if I could sum up today's message in just one statement, it would simply be this, that to experience a full life, we must embrace serving others. Serving. Now, some of you in here, honestly, if I can be honest with you, I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound very fun. And some of you are maybe thinking, oh, this is going to be a message about serving and how the church needs us to serve. And, And listen, it's not really about what we need from you. It's what we want for you. Because at Milestone Church, we believe that this is an everyone church. And that when we all step in and we all play a part, not only is Milestone better, but your life is enriched and you experience a full life in Christ when you serve. And so if you want to experience a full life, then what we've got to do is we've got to follow Jesus' example that he sets for us here in John chapter 13 because he shows us what it means to be a servant. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we come before you today. And God, I just ask that you would anoint the words today, that you would open our ears to hear your truth, open our eyes to see what you want us to see, God, and that we could follow in your example. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in John chapter 8, we learn of a truly scandalous story. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the religious leaders who are often against Jesus and trying to trap him, the text says that they literally catch a woman in the act of adultery. Now, I don't want to be crude in church, but don't gloss over what that phrase means. Literally, in the act. And they catch her and they drag this poor woman to the temple in front of everybody. It doesn't say they did anything to the man. But they drug this woman in front of everybody and they throw her at Jesus' feet in the middle of the crowd. And the religious leaders say, the law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? You see, they're trying to trap Jesus. They expect Jesus to show her mercy. But what they're wanting to do is to see, will he actually say something against the Old Testament law? The text says that Jesus did something very interesting. He looks at the woman, and he bends down. And he begins to write in the sand with his finger. And we don't know what he was writing. It'd be interesting to know, but he just began to write in the sand. And as he writes, the leaders continue to to pester him. What do you say? What do you say? And finally, he looks up, and he says to them, you're right. Essentially, you're right. She deserves to be stoned according to the law. How about the one of you that doesn't have any sin in your life, you cast the first stone. And the text says that one by one, they put down their stones from the oldest to the youngest, and they walked away. And he looks at the woman, and he says, Woman, 
where are your accusers? Does anyone condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, we could spend an entire message just on that story alone, but what really caught my attention this week as I studied it was this fact that Jesus bent down. Can you picture that? This poor woman in her shame on the ground in front of everybody, and Jesus gets down on her level to talk to her. You see, this is who God is. Jesus is the highest authority in the universe, and yet he came down to earth as a baby. What's more vulnerable than a child? And then as a man, he grows up, and then he bends down to show mercy to this woman. You know, that's opposite of who we are in our culture I don't think we're people who stoop or bend. We're often climbers. We climb the corporate ladder. We climb the social ladder. We climb the economic ladder. We're we're climbers by nature, but that's not who God is. God bends down to serve us. Three times in the New Testament, we learn of times where Jesus bent down. One was in this case where he showed mercy to the woman who needed it. Another time that we're, we see Jesus bent is in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's bent down kneeling and saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. It's in submission. And then the third time is here in John chapter 13. So let's take a look at this chapter because he bends down to wash his disciples' feet. John chapter 13, verse 1, it begins and says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. Well, the first thing that we see in this passage is the feast of the Passover is mentioned. Now, that's significant um, uh, for multiple reasons, but what we learn in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that this is the night of the Last Supper. It was in the Last Supper where they celebrated the Passover feast and Jesus instituted communion. Remember, he said, this, this bread is my body broken for you. Take and eat. This, this wine is my blood shed for the remission of sins. Take and drink. That was this meal that John is talking about. Now, it's curious that John doesn't mention that meal. Maybe he felt that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had talked about it enough. And instead, John goes into a different, um, a, a, a different he, oh, he pulls back the curtain and shows us a different view of that night. In fact, John chapter 13 through 17, theologians have called the farewell discourses. They're known as the farewell discourses because up until this point in the book of John, Jesus has had his public ministry. He's been ministering to the crowds. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been performing miracles. But now, starting in chapter 13 with this event right here, uh, it's now Jesus with his 12 disciples, the men that he's walked three and a half years with, and he's poured his life into them. And so these are very intimate chapters. And so it's on this night at, during the supper that John tells us that Jesus knew his hour had come. And if you have your Bibles and you're in the habit of writing in your Bibles, I would, I would encourage you to underline the word new or circle it because it's important. Three times in the passage we're going to read today, we're going to see that Jesus knew something. And notice it says that he knew his hour had come. Now, why is that significant? 
Because up until this point in the book of John, every single time it talks about Jesus' hour, he says, my hour has not yet come. That is the hour where he would go to the cross to pay for our sins, be crucified, and then resurrected. And he always says, my hour has not yet come. And yet here in John chapter 13, now he's saying his hour had come. This is significant because it shows us that that Jesus' crucifixion and the events that were going to take place over the next 24 hours did not catch him by surprise. He knew exactly why he came to the earth, and he was in full control of the situation. And what I love about it is that Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he's reaching the end of his earthly life, look at what it says. He loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. As Jesus was facing the cross and everything that was about to happen to him, his concern was not about himself. It was about how do I love these 12 men that have walked with me for the last three and a half years. Now, some translations say he loved them to the end. Other translations say he loved them fully. And you might see that, that he loved them fully. Uh, the, the Passion translation says he showed them the full measure of his love. And you may go, well, which translation is, it, is right? Is it right to say he loved them to the end or he loved them fully? And the answer is yes. <laughs> They're both right. The Greek could be uh, translated either way. And it's probably true that John had both meanings in mind when he wrote it. Here's what he's saying. Is that at the very end of Jesus' life, what he was concerned about was how do I love the people that I'm closest to even here at the, at the very end? And not only how do I love them, but how do I show them the full measure of my love? love for them. In fact, these chapters, 13 through 17, the major emphasis that John has in these chapters is on the love of God. Here, look at this. In chapters 1 through 12, I don't don't know if you're interested in in this kind of thing, but this, I find this fascinating. In chapters 1 through 12, John uses key words. They become themes throughout the book. He uses the word life 50 times in the first 12 chapters. He uses the word light 32 times. Think about it. We just talked about how Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. That was two times in one verse. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That takes place in the first 12 chapters. He uses the word love six times. So that's the first 12 chapters. Now, chapters 13 to 17, in the next five chapters, he uses the word life six times. He uses the word light 10 times, but he uses the word love 31 times in these five chapters. What is John showing us? That there is a transition. Jesus is no longer doing his public ministry where he's talking about how he's a light to the world and he's here to bring you life. His now main motivation and his concern as he's facing the cross and he's preparing to leave his disciples is, how are they going to treat each other, and how are they going to love each other? This is Jesus's main thrust, and John's main point in these chapters, is how do I show them that they need to love one another, and he does it by a radical demonstration. Verse 2 says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, he rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel 
that was wrapped around him. Now, the first thing I see in these verses is the mention of Judas. You know, why are we mentioning that? Well, just make a little mental note of it. We're going to pick up on that again a few verses from now. The second thing that we see after mentioning Judas is our key word, knowing. And again, if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that word, knowing. And look at what it is that he knows uh, in, in this verse. If you can go back, he knows that the Father has given all things into his hands, that he's come from God and he was going back to God. See, the first point that we learned was that Jesus knew his hour. The second point that we learned is that Jesus knows his identity. He knows who he is. He knows that all things belong to him. He knows that he's from God and he's returning to God. You say, why is that significant? Because he's about to do something radical. He's about to bend down, bend down, and serve those 12 men and show them his love. Here's the takeaway that I want, want you to get. You can't truly serve others if you don't know who you are in Christ. Insecure people are not able to truly serve. Why? Because when we're insecure, we're always worried about what do people think about me? How am I going to look? We're always trying to, to put ourselves in the best light. So we're not going to take the towel and take the place of a servant bent down, show, showing love to others. We're worried about ourselves. But because Jesus fully knew who he was and he was confident in who he was, it enabled him to take the lowest position in the room. And to serve them. Now, he did that by washing feet. Now, why is washing feet such a big deal? Well, look at this picture here. Uh, this week, I, was, I just thought, well, I'll look at um, you know, some pictures of, of foot washing. I thought it would be neat to put a, a slide up that shows that. And here's what I found. Every, every picture on the Internet of washing feet looks like this. I'm like, well, that's just a beautiful little picture. I mean, it's a foot model right there. Look at that. That water's clean. I mean, who wouldn't want that job? I mean, you're just, you're just washing feet. It looks great. Nothing could, and this is what every picture on the internet was like. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth from washing feet in the first century than this picture right here. Think about it. You're in the Middle East. It's a desert region. There's sand everywhere. You don't have combat boots. You're walking around in sandals. It's hot. Your feet are sweaty. By the end of the day or the end of the week or however long it's been since you've had a bath, your feet are covered with dust and dirt and sand. And think of how gross that would be. And here are these men at the supper with, with Jesus. And, um, and in the first century, you actually didn't eat sitting in chairs like we do. You reclined at a table. So they've got these filthy, dirty feet all up in each other's faces as they're trying trying to eat, right? And no one offered to wash each other's feet at that meal. In fact, in the first century, foot washing was such a menial and low task that Jewish servants or Jewish slaves did not have to wash the feet of other Jews. Only a Gentile, a non-Jewish servant, had to wash the feet of somebody else because it was the lowest task that a servant could do. And in fact, in this context, we don't see it here in John 13, but in Luke chapter 22 during this meal, Luke 22 tells us that a discussion or an argument broke out on the table uh, among the disciples. They all started arguing, which one of us is the greatest? Remember when I healed this person? Remember when I preached this message? Remember when God did this through me? They're all arguing with each other about who's the greatest, yet none of them were willing to do this. And in the middle of their argument, Jesus, who is arguably and demonstrably the greatest one of all of them,
takes off his outer garment. He pours water into a bowl. He takes the towel as the servant. And he bends down. Can you picture this? And he begins to wash the dirty feet of these men who have been with him for three and a half years. And he washes and he dries their feet. Can you imagine the awkwardness of that moment? Can you imagine the conviction they must have felt? Can you imagine the awkward silence as Jesus is washing them? The silence is broken in the next verse, of course, by Peter. Because if you know anything about Peter, that would be what, <laughs> what he would do. And it says in the next verse, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And suddenly we realize that Jesus is doing more than just washing their feet. He's actually talking about the washing and the removal of sin. And he's saying, I must wash you. And then characteristic of Simon Peter, he says, you know, he's one on, on one extreme. Now he flips to the other extreme. He says, well, Lord, not my feet only. If you're going to wash me, then wash my hands and my head as well. And Jesus said to him, look, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, for he's completely clean. And I wish we had time. Honestly, you could preach an entire sermon just on those couple of verses of Jesus' interaction. Really quickly, I believe this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, I'm about to go to the cross, and you need your sins removed and washed. And when you're saved, then here's what happens is you're completely clean. You've had a bath. But yet after we're saved, we're still walking around in the world. And what's in contact with the world? It's our feet. And those of you, you know, if you've been saved more than a week, you realize that even though God saves us, we still mess up. We stumble. We, 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 we blow it sometimes. And Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? Here's the good news. If you've messed up, you don't need a bath. You don't need to get re-saved. You just need to come to God and say, hey, God, here's my sin. Will you wash it? Will you cleanse it? That, there's the theological significance. And honestly, that could be a whole message. So, um, but that's not what I want to get to today. After that, then he says this. Uh, he says, he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Verse 10, Jesus said, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. And then he says this, and you, all of you, you're clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. And can I be honest with you? I hate that verse. I mean, like, I feel like we're building up momentum. Like, it's just getting good. Jesus is washing their feet. Like, there's this incredible theological passage. And then why does Jesus have to go in, like, with such a downer? Not all of you are clean. It's like, wah, wah. Did any of you feel like that in that verse? And I'm like, this is, this is terrible. But yet, here we see it again. It's, it's our key word that he knew. Where is it on here? Somewhere on here. He knew. Third time. Underline it in your Bible. He knew who was to betray him. And that's why I said not all of you are clean. And here's what it means. Number three, point three. Jesus knew his betrayer. And knowing who Judas was and knowing what Judas was about to do to him in a matter of hours, I'm going to wash your feet too. 
he didn't only wash the feet of the people that loved him and followed him. He washed the feet of the person who would betray him. I don't know if I could do that in my life. I don't know if the people that have hurt me deeply, if I could go, not just forgive them, but serve them, God. That's what you want me to do. And you may be sitting here today. You may have somebody in your life right now that's hurt you. It may be an ex-spouse. It may be a family member. It may be a business partner that, that wronged you or betrayed you. It may, be, um, it may be a friendship that's turned sideways, and maybe God is trying to change your perspective and saying, what if you forgave, what if you served even those who hurt you the worst in life? That's what Jesus did. And then just to make sure that we don't miss the point, verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you. And then he goes on, we're not going to read the rest of it, to basically say, look, if I'm your Lord and your teacher and I've served you in this way, then you should follow the example and serve each other and love each other. And here's what we learn, is that we show people that we love them by how we serve them. And this question, do you understand what I've done to you? Can you imagine that just lingering in the air in the room that night? Well, I want us to think about it now. Do we understand what God did for us, not just in washing our feet, but in going to the cross for our sins? So let's, in our last closing moments, let's talk briefly about how do we, how do we apply this to our lives? How do we follow Jesus' example in serving others? And I believe there's three biblical concepts that can help us apply this truth to our lives. Number one, it's what I like to call the mind of Christ. It's having Jesus' perspective. You see, here at the end of Jesus' life, as we talked about, he wasn't thinking of himself or the pain or, the, or what he was about to go through. His chief concern was, how do I love the people who are around me? Can I challenge you with a thought? How much is your life, do you spend thinking about serving and loving those around you versus how much are you spending thinking about yourself? How much do you spend praying for other people's needs compared to praying for your own needs? And listen, that's not heavy-handed. I'm going, ouch, <laughs> with myself. Just this week, putting this together, I, I, I was working on the message and, and praying, and there's a lot of things going on at work and with our family right now. And I, I was praying, and I really, I mean, I just felt like God say, hey, how's your team doing? Why don't you spend a few minutes, call each person up. Hey, how are you today? Get, what can you do to get out of yourself and to say, hey, how can I focus on someone else? Because that's Christ's perspective is who can I serve? A second uh, concept that I think helps us apply this is what I would call the attitude of Christ. And the attitude of Christ is that he was just a humble servant. Here he is serving those who are around him. Philippians chapter 2, this is one of my favorite passages in the scripture. It says, in your, Paul is writing and he says, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used for his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of, here's our word, a servant being made in human likeness. If I were to ask you, is there someone in your life today that you need to serve? Who comes to mind? I believe the Holy Spirit could bring somebody to mind right now. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a kid. Maybe it's a, a coworker or a friend or a neighbor. 
Maybe it's an enemy. Maybe it's someone who's wronged you. Who is somebody in your life right now that you say, God wants me to serve this person this week? And I would encourage you to spend some time today and just say, God, what do you want me to do? How can I serve them? Because we're never more like Christ than when we serve. So number one is the mind of Christ. Number two is the attitude of Christ. And the third concept is, I believe, the mission of Christ. When we embrace Christ's mission in our life, Because he came not to be served, but to serve others. And you say, how could you sum up the mission of Christ in a a quick phrase? Well, uh, I think our mission statement for Milestone Church sums it up really well. It's reaching people and building lives. And how much are you in your life, are you bought into this? When you wake up tomorrow morning, are you thinking about, oh, what are the things that I have to do in my job? Or do you wake up thinking, God, I want to advance your kingdom. I want to reach people for you. I want to help people reach their potential in you. Because that is what makes life full. It's been, um, I don't know how long it's been since I've been here at our McKinney campus. It was at least pre-COVID. And and so I haven't been here in a while. This morning, I guess this is a new thing that we're doing. The serve team all gathers around out in the atrium out there. And they do announcements and we pray. And I'm going to tell you, the energy in that circle was palpable. You could feel it. The excitement, the life, the joy of everybody who's gathered around that circle for no other purpose but to serve other people. Why? Because when we partner with the mission of Christ, our life becomes full. And I love that. And that's who you are here at Milestone Church. You are those who serve others. Well, I want to show you a picture of Sheila. Sheila is at our Keller campus. This is her and her family right here. These are some of the ladies in her small group. And Sheila went through our freedom ministry a couple of years ago. And after going through freedom, it was just an incredible experience for her. And then she signed up the next semester to be a freedom intercessor. And those of you that haven't been through freedom, you don't know this, but every single freedom group is partnered with an intercessor who literally prays for every single person by name every day in that group. I think it's one of the reasons why that ministry is so powerful. And so Sheila was a freedom intercessor for us for a couple of semesters. And this summer, as we began to step out and and launch our freedom semester, the very day that groups were launching, she came up to me and she says, Pastor Tim, is it too late? Can I lead a group? And she said, I know I've been an intercessor in the past, but I feel like God is actually telling me to step out and lead. And I have this group of ladies that I'm a part of their group, but I'm not a leader in their group. But I feel like God is saying, you need to step out and lead them through freedom this summer. And I said, Sheila, of course, if that's what God's calling you to do, here's the training resources. Here's what you need. We'll get you partnered with an intercessor and go and step out and lead that group. And she was nervous, but she took all of the training and she stepped out and she launched that group. You fast forward six weeks later, she comes up to me at church and she says, Tim, I've got to tell you, tears in her eyes, the number of breakthroughs that she's already seeing happen in these women's lives. She's got a lady that's been through freedom at two other churches and, you know, different versions of it, who's going through freedom now at Milestone and God's showing her new insight. There's a lady in her group that struggled with unforgiveness because of things that she's been through. God's bringing freedom to her. And then this was just a little side thing, but Sheila said, last week at our group, we started the week out with an icebreaker, and it was, who's an encourager? Who in your life speaks words of life to you? And she said, three of the women in the group said it was me. She goes, Sheila, you're the encourager. And tears welled up in her eyes, and tears welled up in my eyes. Now, here, I... 
here's what I know about Sheila. She didn't lead the group for that. <laughs> she didn't lead the group so other people would go, you're so wonderful. But yet in leading, what, had, what happened? She got filled up because she sees what God is doing in the life of others. And I said to Sheila, imagine if you hadn't have said yes when God was calling you to do that. She said, none of this would be happening. And she's so excited for Freedom Weekend. Now listen, I don't know about you. I don't know where God's going to call you to serve. You may not end up serving uh, by leading a small group or leading a freedom group, although I won't argue with him if he tells you to do that. That would be wonderful. That may not be it. You may serve by simply holding babies back there in the nursery or serve by holding the door open and smiling as people come in or passing offering buckets or helping people park cars or helping in our student ministry or leading a group. But here's what I want to promise you is that when God calls you to serve in whatever area and whatever way, if you simply say yes, hand me the towel, you will experience a life that's full.